0: Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 2. Chapter 2. Yeah, I know this will be my last sermon before, for a while, for about four Sundays, but we're going to keep pressing through 1 uh, Timothy, and I'll pick it up when I get back. Jeremy's got other things in store for you, so uh, he'll be ready for you. You know, it never hurts to ask, what's the worst they could say? I mean, we use that to kind of encourage us to ask a question. And my wife lives by that motto, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. What's the worst they could say? But God commands us to pray, to ask him to save souls, to save those who don't know Jesus. And he commands us to do that. so we should ask. And Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, as I've said before. He's a pastor of the church at Ephesus, and he's writing him to instruct the church, as well as Timothy on some clear, definite actions that he needs to take to help that church move forward, to help that church get out of some dangerous trouble. And so Paul now, he starts to point to some of those actions that any church needs to take, any church needs, should be able to, to uh, facilitate and, and do. I want you to see what Paul says is first, okay? Let's read together verses 1 through 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good, and it pleases God our Savior, who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man. Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Let's pray. Father... This is great instruction. It is definitely not where we would have started our corrections and our actions, but it is where you want us to start, prayer. So teach us this morning, Father, from your word. Speak to us. May your spirit move among us and in our hearts and awaken us to this wonderful discipline of prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Paul commands... Timothy and the church to ask God to save souls because that is the true focus of any church. That is the true mission of any church. And so in the eternal order of God, see, God doesn't have a calendar or watch. He doesn't watch us day by day. He watches us from beginning to end, from the beginning of time to the end of time. He sees it all right now. And in the eternal order of God, souls being saved rank as the most important thing to him. The most important to him and the most important to the church is we must ask for them to be saved. That's what God wants us to do. Why does God want the church to request salvation of souls? Well, Paul points to God's purposes to ask for salvation. He's going to point to that this, this morning in this passage. First of all, he points to the fact that it's for God's good pleasure because that's what God wants. And it's for our benefit as well. It's for our purposes as well. Look at verses 1 through 4 again. First of all then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. For kings and all those who are in authority. So that that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? There's a lot in there. But I want, to, I want you to see where Paul starts. He gets these instructions going. He's wanting to help Timothy and the church fight the good fight we talked about last week. Fight the good fight. And first of all, pray for all people. Pray for all people. And this has to mean evangelistic prayer. Because we don't know everybody's needs physically or materially. I mean, we want everybody to have what they need. We want everybody to be healthy. But we don't know specifically. But we know specifically one need everybody has. They need Jesus Christ. So he wants us to pray evangelistically for the saving of souls. This is primary to God. God's telling us to that. He's asking God to save, asking God to redeem, asking God to call souls to faith. That's the most important thing. And it's all humans that need this. Paul gives some specific components of prayer here. I mean, he lists four things out here in here. And so I want to give you kind of a brief explanation. I don't want to spend too much time on this. But but these words have particularly deliberate meanings to Paul. First of all, he says petitions. Well, petitions, they arise from a, a sensed need. There is a need, you make a petition. We do that with the government. We want something changed, we want something added, we petition the government. Well, that's the same thing here. It's request-driven by a need. Something needs to happen, and in this case, salvation needs to happen. So a lack of something or an absence of something, which is the salvation of souls, we petition God for these souls. We petition God to hear their need by our lips. And then he mentions prayers. Prayer is just communicating with God. It's intercession. It's it's involving yourself with God. It's engaging with God. It's the only word in the Bible that's used to talk directly to God. You never pray to people. You never pray to objects. You only pray to God. And seeking to come to God's throne to find mercy and grace for any and all needs, that's what prayer is, to draw closer by conversations with him. So that's what he uses here in prayer. The next word he uses, intercessions. Intercessions are stepping in line with somebody, getting involved to their life by pleading and begging for help, whether it's help for them or for them to hear, for their salvation, for their rescue. That's an intercession. We ask God, but we also intercede. We're wanting to put ourselves in the way of helping them get right with God. And then thanksgivings. We only need to be given thanks to God, given to the Creator for what we have and what He will bestow on us, especially in light of salvation. Gratitude is an eternal attitude. We will, be, we will be being grateful for the rest of eternity for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. When we get to heaven, we're going to spend every day not standing in front of the throne. I know some of you think that's boring, but we're going to be spend every day thanking God that we're there. We won't ever have any desire to be anywhere else. We will be glad we are there. So gratitude is an eternal attitude. And I want you to notice that all these forms of prayers that he lists here, the forms there, they're all plural, which means God wants you to do it more than once, more than twice, probably more than three times. He wants you to pray continually, which he does say that, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians five seventeen. God's expecting us to ask multiple times for the salvation of people's souls. But he also gives us a specific group that he also wants us to pray for. Because it's, it's not a group we would normally pray for. Kings and authorities. Now, it, Paul uses a word in the Greek that actually means, is used to mean kings. It's, it's used throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, everywhere. Kings. But think about when Paul wrote this letter and who was the king of the world at that point. Nero. Emperor of Rome. Nero the worst emperor at all, of all time of persecuting Christians. Paul says, pray for him. Pray for him. Wow. Pray for him? Are you kidding me? Today we'd be praying for your president in America, your Congress, your governor, your state legislature. We'll talk some more about that in a moment. But ask God to save all people, even these people, from eternal damnation. Beg God for their rescue. Yes, all political positions, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle they're on, they got to come down one aisle to get to Christ. They need to come to Christ. So pray for them. Now, why would God ask us to do this? Well, obviously it's God, so He can do what He wants, but what's His reason for asking us to do this? Well, first of all, it's God's purposes, God's eternal purposes that are involved here. And first of all, it's obedience to God's truth to to obedience will lead to his abundant life that Jesus promised in John 10:10. 10, 10. He promised us abundant life and none of us need to be thinking about money, cars, houses, boats, lands, none of that. We need to be thinking about eternal security in Christ Jesus. That's abundance. Having that peace. Obedience leads to God's abundant life. So he says you will have a tranquil and quiet life so that you will have that. Pray for these people and pray for lost souls so that your life will be tranquil and quiet. Prayers like these and for these keeps our anger and our discontentment under control. It's really hard to be mad at somebody when you're praying for them, when you're really praying for them, not just mumbling a prayer for them or not praying some other kind of prayer for them which really isn't a prayer. See, people calm down. We turn all of our trouble over to God when we're praying for people's salvation. And And we can love those who might make our life untranquil, who might mess up the quietness of our life. We can pray for them, people. And even if those people don't change, they still need salvation. So we need to still pray for them. That's that's what Paul's telling Timothy here. They need it. We need to pray for it. Because rebellion, resistance, and civil disobedience, it really fades in the light of God's salvation. Martin Luther King, he didn't want violence. He just wanted fairness, but he was willing, not willing to compromise his faith to get that. See, there's a way to live under tyranny and persecution. There's a way that, to do that. And God says, pray. That's how you live under tyranny and persecution. Every day with joy and peace. And if you don't believe it, just ask somebody from the Chinese church. They've been praying for centuries, and it seems like, for decades. The Chinese church prays and prays and prays because they can't sing because the government might hear them and find them. The Iranian church, one of the fastest-growing churches right now, underground churches in the world, they pray. They pray a lot. They pray for souls of of their leaders, of the police, of everybody. You can live under tyranny and persecution by praying for people. But it's not only tranquility and quietness we get. We also get godliness and dignity from it. When prayers focus on evangelical and eternal purposes, when we're focusing on what God focuses on, God's interests and his will is pursued in our hearts. So that makes us godliness. That works toward our godliness. These promote godliness and moral earnestness. We, we want to live out our faith. We want it to be right. We don't want people to be able to, to badmouth Jesus because of the way we acted. Obeying God means behaving with God's purposes In mind. God wants us, wants souls to be saved. He wants souls to be saved. He wants everyone to follow his son. That is the next purpose. See, it's for God's pleasure. This is where we're at that point. It's also for our our benefit, but now God's going to talk about his pleasure, his purpose. He wants everybody to be saved. Obedience to the command to pray for all people, including rulers, is, Paul says, good in God's eyes. Now, remember, our good and God's good are usually on a different plane. (laughs) God's good is perfect. Our good is usually, well, whatever. That's good enough for government work, I used to say. It's good in God's eyes. It is an act of good conscience, a holy act in love for lost and dying souls. And that is what pleases God. Prayers for the salvation of all people means... (sighs) It means surrendering our wills, our personal wills, our personal ideas. It means setting aside our worldly, temporal disagreements and praying for the people that need Jesus. Now, I'm going to do a little doctrinal, doctrinal break here because some of you may be asking this question. Now, if God wants all souls to be saved, why doesn't that happen? Why doesn't that happen? Well, we're having uh, not a conflict, but we're, we're introducing to you this morning the doctrine of election, which some of you may have already heard me preach on at times, and the doctrine of the universal call to salvation, the call to Christ, universal call to Christ. See, first of all, we have to start that God's sovereignty rules everything, okay? His will it was set before time began. God said it. He knew every, He planned everything that's happened. Now, that may ruffle your feathers a little bit and make you wonder, So he planned Job? Yes, he planned Job. Did he plan all the other bad things that happened? Yes, because he planned his son's death, burial, and resurrection. God is sovereignly in control of everything. If you don't believe that, then then you're really not believing the full truth of God. He is in control of everything, and he started this before time began. His divine purpose for the eternal existence of souls is a hidden secret and not in view of us until it happens. None of us know who's going to get saved until it happens. None of us know who's going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. We do know this. They will. Some will, for sure. And so we don't know exactly how this works out in God's mind, but as the plan of redemption unfolds, God has a wish, a desire. His will has happened. His will is set. It's moving forward through time, our time. But he has a wish while this thing unfolds in our time and space. His wish is that everyone would believe in his son, that all souls would be saved. God sent his son and wishes them to be, him to be believed by all. I mean, that's, he, his son is special to him. But yet, God's purpose in his own mind, and in his own ways, God's purpose, divine purpose, transcends his desire, his wish. Souls will be lost. We know that. We know that. Souls will be lost. Eternal death will come to some. Hell will be experienced by others. And the Bible is clear that that has already happened to some and will happen to others. So that's an obvious thing that happens. Those who do not trust in Jesus before death will spend eternity in hell. For the glory of God, too, by the way. All things are happening for his glory. It's God's divine purpose. But God wishes, (laughs) this is what God wishes. He wishes for all humanity to trust his son. Anyone who does will be saved. Anyone who does will be saved. God chose, but only he reveals when they will, when the gospel is shared. That's the way he set this up. He wants everybody to become saved, but he's chosen some to be saved, and they will only be saved When we share the gospel, and the first step of sharing the gospel is praying for them. That's the way this works. God's plan, not mine. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. We do not know who will be saved, which is why we pray. We pray for them all, Paul said, all people. We pray for them all. We don't know who's going to be saved, and we tell everybody we can tell. That's why we do missions. Giving the gospel to everyone is our job. That's why he left us here. Saving them, that's God's job. And I'm glad because I sure can't save anybody. Barely can save myself sometimes from from myself. God tells us to ask for souls to be saved for his good pleasure and our benefit, in our life, here and in the future as well, in eternity. You ever had exciting news that that you wanted to tell somebody and you run up to your friend or your spouse and you're telling them this news and you're really excited about it? Like there's a sale at Dollar General or I don't know, whatever, you know, (laughs) You tell them, and they're kind of like, So what? Doesn't that just deflate you? Doesn't that just like crush you? Doesn't that just like hurt your feelings a little bit? Well, listen, God tells us this I sent Jesus so that all people could be saved. I want all to come to faith. And we say, Okay, happy for you. That's kind of our attitude. We don't stop and we don't pray. God expects us to pray for them. He has sent his son Jesus so all people could be saved. That's his wish. I want them to come to faith. And we're kind of like, so what? That's the greatest news in the world. God expects us to be in agreement and motivated to at least ask them for salvation. Every, every month I send you a, a newsletter from the International Mission Board. And inside it has a, day, a prayer thing every day for people who are lost. Pray for them. Pray for them. That's what we do. That's what we do. So listen to, to God. He's in the Old Testament. He tells Ezekiel this. Listen to what he says. Hear his excitement here, okay, and his expectation. Ezekiel chapter 18, he says, do I take pleasure... In the death of the wicked? Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? I take no pleasure in anyone's death, so repent and live. See, God's not sitting up there going, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, and being happy about it. He's not. He wants everybody to believe in his son, Jesus Christ. God wants us to pray for souls, all souls, to be saved. That is the fact that's in Scripture right here. And when we obey this command and when we earnestly pray in all four, four forms that are listed there, we will be blessed. Even if we don't know whether they became Christians or not, the results of praying through this doesn't, doesn't matter. Keep praying. One day you may get approached by somebody in heaven and says, you know what, I know that you prayed for me because you had this little thing and you prayed out, out loud for me. God wants that. He wants us to do that. We have lost people on this prayer sheet inside, people that need salvation. We have it listed there. Pray for. Them. Don't let the results be a hindrance. We need to pray for. Them. When our focus is on eternity and not taxes and bills and policies, then tranquility, peace, godliness and dignity come to us. That's the way it's found not in whatever's going on around us in in the world. The president, Congress, the governor of the state, the legislature, I know you don't agree with them. Law enforcement, there's there's a list at the bottom of one side of this thing of all the governmental leaders. Pray for them. Lord knows they need it, (laughs) and so do we. We need to pray for them. See, our focus as believers is different. It's got to be. Otherwise, why are we even doing this? Why are we even here? It's hard to stay angry and agitated when people are praying for someone's soul. Our vendettas fade away because we're looking to God. We're praying for lost souls. Praying for all souls is the type of love and behavior Christ exemplified. I mean, he wept over Jerusalem because they were not going to believe in him. When was the last time you wept over a lost soul? You know, some some of us live for a fight. Some of us love to to argue and debate. We love to be riled up about some issue. It it could be anything. That's not God's way. Complaining is not a spiritual gift, just so you know. Complaining is not a spiritual gift. God calls praying, he calls us to pray sincerely for lost souls. And he calls it good. And I'm telling you, anything God calls good, we should try to do. Matter of fact, we should do. We shouldn't even just try, as Yoda says. We need to do it. If God desires or wishes for all souls to believe in Jesus, then we should too. And we should act on his desire. He wants the knowledge of the truth, of the gospel, spoken to people so they can know Jesus. And this truth, this absolute truth that we promote that most people don't, Most religions don't promote an absolute truth. This absolute truth, rule number one in that absolute truth is God is God and you are not. And we start there. He says you need a savior and he gave you one, Jesus. He doesn't say I offered you a savior as an option. You need it. Every soul needs it. Rule number one, God is God and you are not. So ask God to save and share that truth with others. Yeah, it it won't go down easy with some folks. Some folks will have a struggle with it. But prayer is the very first thing we do when we want to share the gospel with someone. Praying for them. It's important. Remember Pentecost? 120 people gathered in a room somewhere around Jerusalem. They prayed for 10 days. For 10 whole days they prayed. I can barely get some people to pray for 10 minutes, myself included. They prayed for 10 days, Peter preached for 10 minutes, and 3,000 people came to Christ. What seems to be the more important thing there? Peter's sermon or the prayer? We need to do it. We need to pray, and we need to gather together to pray. So that's the first purposes that Paul outlines for Timothy. God calls us to pray for souls, to be saved. So the gospel, the real message of salvation gets proclaimed and worship happens. That's the next point. Gospel proclaiming and righteous worship. Verses 5 through 8. Listen to this. This is awesome. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. For this I was appointed a herald and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Paul recites the gospel here in verses five and six very succinctly, very, I mean, this is a great little concise way to present it, but it's powerful. There is one God, there is only one God, and he is God and you're not. Remember that rule. And one God, that runs against all other religions out there. Even, even Allah is not, he's one God to, the, to Muslims, but he's one God to a bunch of other people too, among the other gods. The exclusivity of God really irritates other religions. It really does. What do you mean there's only one God? I mean, Oprah even had a problem with it. Still does, I think. The exclusivity of God really irritates them. And God... Is the God. That's what Paul tells him right here. He is the God. He's the only one, by the way. But any other thing you set up as God, He rules over that. Regardless of what anyone else says. Okay? You know, missionaries testify that it is a very welcome truth when a, when a culture that's pantheistic, that has multiple gods, hears there's only one, and they and they begin to accept that truth, they're relieved. You know why? They only got one God to please now, not 330 million as the Hindus do. I mean, wow, what a relief. Better than Alka Seltzer. So, since God is one, He sent one mediator. He sent one mediator. There is only one way to please God. Only one. See, God didn't send Buddha, He didn't send Muhammad, He didn't send Allah, He didn't send Joseph Smith, He sent Jesus Christ one man fully God and fully man by the way he sent himself in a sense so believe in his son the mediator of all humanity God appoints Christ as the sole mediator there is no other way and the truth is you need a way everybody needs a way to be right with God and Jesus is it and it only it's very exclusive Man, people don't like the exclusivity of Jesus. Oh, they'll talk about Jesus. The Muslims will talk to you about Jesus as a great teacher. Everybody has Jesus folded into their religious antics. But when you start talking about him being the son of God and the only way to heaven, they get ticked off. They really get upset. But God is God and you are not. That's where it starts. And God sent one mediator. Jesus bought a new covenant for humanity. In the Old Testament, there's covenants after covenants after covenants. God made with everybody, including Abraham, David. He made all these covenants. But they were always dependent on human behavior too. And they broke those covenants. But Jesus brings a new covenant. He bought this new covenant. He did it by taking our place. I want you to hear me on this now. He's he's paid our ransom with his life. He's paid our ransom with his life. He's taking our sins onto himself. He has become sin for us. Nowhere on earth is a God credited with sending his only son, his, his precious son, a son of his, for a human soul. Nowhere. No religion has that. No religion has that. And that's why we're not a religion. We're a relationship. That's why we're, God reaches down. It's so much more than just paying a price, okay? Understand that. It's more than just paying a price, paying someone's bail. It was the life of God the Son. God saved us by dying for us. I mean, the ransom word, we, we see that word, and in English it's got kind of one con- connotation in our minds. But in the Greek, they actually added a preposition to it or a prefix to it the same word for ransom to add another a little more emphasis to it i should say it's not a payment to a kidnapper it's a swap a complete swap jesus was substituted for us it's not just god said okay here's the ransom here's some money god jesus swapped places with us those who would believe god saved us by giving himself He saved us from his wrath by putting his wrath on Jesus. The truth is, God saved us from himself by himself. Greatest news ever. And we need to pray that people understand it because it is the the only way. See, it's more than exoneration. It's more than just declaring us innocent. It made us innocent. It's full and complete substitution for all of our sins. Jesus took hell for us. He did. Now some people say, "Well, well, he didn't go to hell. Well, no, he didn't go to hell, but being forsaken by God the Father, being separated from his Father for that period of time on the cross, those three hours, on top of being, having to be buried, that's hell. That is hell. That is hell for Jesus. Christ's death was sufficient for every human being. It was sufficient. His blood was sufficient. It could wipe everybody's sins away. But it was effective for only those who will believe. That's what we we pray for. It's sufficient for everybody, but not everybody believes it. It's effective only for those who trust it. And this event is a perfect witness, as Paul says. it's, It's the perfect witness, the perfect testimony to the love of God and the perfect timing of God for souls. God set this plan in motion before light existed, okay, Go to, you go to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Before that, he put this plan in, in motion. He made up this plan. This plan has existed. This wasn't, oh gosh, I need a plan now. They sinned. God's not like that. He's not reactionary. He's very proactive. God set this plan in motion, and, and the day and time of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was already set before Adam and Eve even sinned. God knew he was going to do this. And so when you look in verse 7, you're kind of like, well, why is this verse here? Well, it, whenever, whatever shape the gospel takes, when Paul presents it, he always kind of presents his job. His job description is to present the gospel. That's, he kind of adds that. He, he adds the calling. He's not really bragging. It's validating. Why are you, Paul, bringing us this message? Well, because God called me to do that. So he's validating the fact that he can bring him this message. And then, but he also, I want you to understand, if you read the letters of the New Testament from Paul, many times his apostleship is challenged. Many times people just don't believe he's an apostle. And so it's challenged and Paul's constantly defending himself about that. Um, it, It was always seemed to be a point of contention, especially with Jews, even Jewish Christians, they were like, but you were persecuting the church and you know, all. We, we read about a couple of weeks ago. But the enemies of Paul were using any reason in the book, any reason, to deny his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So that's why he puts these little tidbits in here. I was appointed a herald and apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He drops those in there to once more validate why he can tell you this message is true. Remember, he got a a face-to-face with Jesus. He got a face-to-face with Jesus. And some people believe that his three years in Arabia was spent with Jesus, that Jesus came and taught him like he taught the apostles for three years. I don't know. Nothing records that, but it's probably a good... uh, We do know the Holy Spirit was teaching him the whole time. By trusting Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for forgiveness of sins, Paul teaches them to be saved by God in faith. That's what he's teaching them. God wants his people to ask for the gospel to be made clear to souls for their salvation. He wants us to get the gospel out in prayers the way we start. So therefore, verse eight, and if you've been here long enough, you know whenever you see a therefore in the scriptures, you need to go back up to see what the therefore is there for because that's how you interpret scripture. So after Paul says all of this in verses one through seven, he says, therefore, I want. Paul commands by God, for the prayers and the proclamations and the, this obedience to be led by men. Okay, men, wake up if you're sleeping. Wake up. This is, your, this is for you, okay? This is for you. I'll get to the ladies when I get back. There's, there's more coming, trust me. A lot more coming. Men, we are commanded by God to lead in these prayers, to raise our voices in corporate prayer for souls. We're called to do that. Paul's making it very clear. Because God commands it. God gives some conditions to this too, okay? It's not just you show up and you just start praying out loud. He wants, he wants you to monitor yourself a little bit. So he puts some conditions when we're leading people in prayer. This is, for, this is for everybody, but this is for the men when they're doing this. First of all, be holy in your actions. He says raising holy hands there. Be holy, the scripture says, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So raising holy hands, it's more symbolic. It might not be a bad idea for us to practice that a little bit, but it, it's more symbolic of making sure that men have their hearts free of sinful acts, that we're not coveting sin, that we're not clinging to some, some pet sin, that we are holy when we lead people in these prayers. The second condition Paul puts on this is he wants men not to be angry. Not to be angry. I notice in Scripture Paul never tells women not to be angry he has to tell he tells everybody be angry and sin not in Ephesians but Paul wants men not to be angry angry prayers are not holy they're not they're just not the prayer of a righteous man is effective James says but he also says man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires so don't be angry and thirdly Paul wants men to cease the argumentative combative quarreling that we do over temporal things, temporary things, temporary matters. We, Man, we can argue about a lot of things. He says, the Bible says, set your minds on things above. Set your mind on things above. Live by the Spirit, and you will not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The Bible tells us that. So men are given this duty and leadership by God, setting the example by word and deed in prayer. That's what men are called to do, all of you. Okay? This doesn't leave anybody out. It didn't say just pastors or just deacons or just elders. It didn't say young, old, or middle aged. It said all men. God expects his people to ask him for souls to be saved, and he puts men in charge of it. So sometimes when we're wondering why souls aren't being saved, maybe we aren't guys. Maybe we aren't praying enough. Maybe we aren't leading in that kind of prayer. It's a thought gospel proclamation for the souls of humanity will lead to genuine prayerful worship. And that's where he's headed to. And men are to be in charge of that, to lead it. Not really in charge of it, but leading it by example. Think about this. What if the Wright brothers, um, I like airplanes. What if the Wright brothers built that Wright flyer, that contraption, which I don't think was very easy to fly anyway. And they, and they had it on the beach at Kitty Hawk. And they're looking at each other and going, okay, when are you getting in? And he goes, when are you getting in? Like, they didn't want to fly it. What if they didn't want to even get in the plane and try to fly it? The guy they got it built. They would almost bet their life savings that it would fly. I'm not going to fly it. You fly it. Well, I'm not going to fly it. Well, get that guy over there to fly it. And that guy's like, I don't know how to fly that thing. They flipped the coin, by the way, to decide who was going to get to fly it first. They really did both want to fly it. But what if they didn't? What if they'd have built that sucker? It's just like the greatest gift ever given to humanity stands before us in Jesus Christ. The greatest gift ever. And men, we are called to lead the prayers and the proclamation of that. Not solely, but lead it. Mm, What if Wilbur and Orwell had never flown it? Wow. So verses 5 and 6 they are probably one of the best explanations of the gospel and, and most concise. It tells what the gospel did. It tells us exactly what Jesus came for. But here's why it was necessary. God created a perfect world. If you read your Bible, you read Genesis 1 and 2, maybe you've read that, maybe you haven't. But Genesis 1 and 2, perfect world. Everything was perfect. There was no, there was no leopards eating antelope and none of that going on in the creation in chapters 1 and 2. He created a perfect world with perfect humans. Perfect humans, what a novel idea. Adam and Eve, though, chose to disobey God. He gave them one rule. They chose to break it. They believed Satan's lie. Yeah, it was Satan's fault for tempting them, but they believed it. They believed that God was cheating them out of something. He was holding them something back from them. Satan convinced them you eat this fruit, you'll be like God. I want to be like God. No, that's not what it meant. So they decided to be their own God. They sentenced all of humanity by their evil choice to the curse of death and sin. But God had a plan. And his plans never fail. And he would show his eternal love and compassion by sending his only son. And that is why God sent Jesus. John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave, sent his only, one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You and I were kidnapped. We were trapped. We were condemned by our own soul. Your own life, your own soul had you in prison. And then Jesus died in your place, if you're a believer. Jesus took our place. He didn't just pay our bail. He took our place. He went to death for us. He went to death for us. That should mean something to you. If you're a believer, that should motivate you. Now, if we will accept, trust, submit to his provision for our sins, we are forgiven of them all. There is no partial forgiveness in in Christ. It's all. It's complete. Past, present, future. And you will sin in the future, by the way, if if you continue to live. God wants to forgive, but justice requires blood. And his son, Jesus, bled for our sins. And it is the only way to be forgiven. Remember, God is God and we are not. He said that. The only way to be forgiven is for the shedding of blood. And Jesus, he mediates to God on our behalf when we believe in his death, burial, and resurrection for our souls. And the prayers are for this. We're we're praying for people to believe this. Yet sometimes we just won't take the lead on it. I mean, we're supposed to be asking, begging, interceding, petitioning God to allow people to trust Jesus' sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection. And men, we're the ones supposed to be leading this. In our families, in our churches, anywhere we can. We're to spearhead it, to promote it, to make it a priority everywhere. That's what we're called to do. We must submit to the conditions, okay? Paul laid out those conditions. Be holy, don't, don't be angry, don't be argumentative. Pray this way. Remember, complaining is not a spiritual gift hands, the hands that he talks about represents actions. That's a symbolic way of most of what we do is with our hands. And most of what we do in sin is with our hands. It starts in our heart, but it's with our hands when it's visible. So raising them in worship or praying is a custom of that day. That was something they did. It's also something we could probably do too, probably should do. Hmm. Maybe think about that. God needs brave men who are willing to risk anything to pray for lost souls. He needs men. He's directed that. So we need to answer the call, guys. Let me sum this up for you. This is the first directive that God gives the church in Timothy. The first directive from God to the church. Pray for all people in all authorities for their salvation, to believe the gospel. And by the way, Men, you're to lead it. I mean, that's his first edict right there. Pray, men be in in the lead. And every Tuesday, we gather over here in the corner to pray. Now, if that time doesn't work, we can start another one. I'll be glad to start another one. Anytime. You name it. You come to me. Some of you, uh, matter of fact, a lot of you have keys to the building. You come in here anytime and gather and pray. You don't have to have me with you. We need to make prayer a priority. God makes it clear. He expects us to pray for souls. And we need to start it right now and keep going. So, let's close our eyes. I'm going to stretch you a little bit. Let's close our eyes. And if you're willing, and you can, raise your hands, all of you. It doesn't have to be just men this time. Raise your hands to God and let's pray for souls. If you can't, put them on your put them on your legs, put your palms up, open your hands to God. It's amazing that that posture helps so much. Let's close our eyes, do it, don't look around, and let's pray to God for the souls of men and women. Let's pray. Father, it it is your wish that all people would come to the knowledge of truth of your Son. And we know that's your wish. The Bible is clear. We don't have to guess if it's something someone else made up. It is what it says. Your wish is for us to pray for lost souls, to pray for authorities, governing authorities, law enforcement, whatever it may be, that's everybody that's in some sort of authoritative position to pray for their souls too. If they're lost, to pray for their salvation. If they're a believer and they're struggling in their roles, that we can pray for them to be strong in their faith and in the knowledge of the truth. Father, let us all right now, lead us all right now to think of someone we know that needs your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you will hear our prayers for that person. Give us Give us, Father, the opportunity, the chance, the opening to share the greatest story ever, that you loved us so much you sent your Son for us. Help us to pray, Father, with holy hands, with no anger in our hearts and no arguing in our minds and no if ands, or buts to our prayers, but to pray completely to God and to lead that prayer in every aspect of our life. Jesus, you are our Savior. God, you are our Father, and we love you. Help us to show that love by praying for those and witnessing to those who need it. In your Son's precious name I pray amen well believers I've said enough as the praise team comes